A quick warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence. Amr al-Azim is a Syrian archaeologist, and in the early 2000s he was working as a lecturer at the University of Damascus. And during his time there, one of his favorite things to do with his students was to make the 150-mile trip to Palmyra, northeast of Damascus, to visit the ancient Temple of Bel at sunrise. There's a particular ritual that any visitor is advised if they are able to do so, and that's to go and visit it very early in the morning uh, at dawn, so when the sun is rising. The building itself is on, is on an east-west axis, and so as the sun rises in the east and or beginning to rise, it's quite dark, obviously, still. And you sit, stand in there and you're just waiting, and then this burst of light is just going to explode inside the, the room, and, it, and, it, and it's, it, it's quite spectacular. The Temple of Bell was built around 2,000 years ago, and it is, or it was, one of Syria's most loved and important ancient sites. It had lived countless lives as the city around it was ruled by different empires. Around 32 AD, it was first dedicated to a Mesopotamian god. Then it was a church during the Byzantine era, and then a mosque. Before this last Syrian war, it also hosted the Palmyra Music Festival. But in 2015, the Temple of Bel was destroyed by the Islamic State group. The generations that will come after us, the, the, the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, Syrians, they're never going to be able to have that experience. My children have never been to the to Palmyra. Now, they might be able to see pictures of the Temple of Bel. They might even see a recreation or a reconstruction, but it won't be the real thing. And more importantly, they'll never be able to have that same experience I had. And I think that's really tragic. But I think every Syrian who feels some sort of connection with a place or a location that's been damaged or destroyed will have their own tale to tell uh, of what they've lost and how they feel that loss. The sunrise over Palmyra isn't the only piece of history that Syrian children born today will never get the chance to know. The wounds to Syria's cultural past cut much deeper than that. Part of that wound is the proliferation of illegal artifact trafficking, places like Palmyra and other historical sites across Syria. And our story today is about that. It's about the inner workings of an industry run on stolen items, stolen memories, and a stolen history. And the extraordinary efforts by Syrians who risked their lives to try and document the country's heritage just as it was being taken away from them. I'm not the hero of the story. You know, this is not a bad what I did or did not do. The guys on the ground, the guys who risked their lives to get the photos and images and then transmitting them, knowing full well that if they were ever caught with a telephone by ISIS or the regime, for that matter, with that kind of information, they would be killed and killed horribly. They are the real heroes of our story. Today is a story of those heroes. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And 
you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Today's episode comes to us from producers Zena Duwaidad and Alex Atak. In 2011, at the beginning of the Syrian conflict, Amr was living in a small town in Ohio in the USA, and he watched on the news as the situation in his home country got worse and worse. In Syria, in 2011... It was the year of people, power, of revolution. You know, you have the Arab Spring um, sweeping the region. Protests in Bahrain, Morocco, Jordan. The world's attention now focused on Syria. Will it be the next domino to fall? By the end of 2011 and going into 2012, effectively what had started out as civil society, peaceful protests, has now essentially degenerated. Across Syria, hundreds of lightly armed, poorly trained rebel groups are fighting to overthrow one of the Middle East's last remaining dictators, Bashar al-Assad. Into a armed confrontation between a militarized opposition on one side and the regime's military forces and allies on the other. Once that happens in early 2012, literally this First of all, the conflict spreads very, very quickly to almost the entire country. And the scale of destruction that is occurring in its wake is just phenomenal. In that process of, of this disintegration, cultural heritage becomes a casualty of this conflict. The state sector was the largest employer in Syria. And so when state institutions started to collapse, people's livelihoods collapsed alongside it. And when that happened, they started looking for new ways to make a living. The looting starts in 2012. And I think a lot of it was what we refer to as subsistence looting. This is people who've lost their livelihoods. They know that there's buried treasure. At least they assume in their minds that there's buried treasure all over the place. Every Syrian knows someone whose uncle from their great-grandfather's side, from his second wife, whilst digging in their courtyard or basement or something, came up cross a buried pot of gold. So there's this kind of urban myth almost, you know, that there's this gold somewhere. So people start to dig around and look for it. And and so we see this extensive looting start to spread right across Syria. But Amr was watching this from halfway across the world, and it was basically impossible for him to get a clear picture of what was actually going on inside his home country. Foreign reporters, human rights monitors, and cultural heritage groups had very little access to Syria. So he co-founded this emergency initiative called Day After and started scouting around to put together a team of archaeologists and grassroots activists in the country, made up of people he'd known from his teaching days in Damascus. We had recruited local, again, people from the community, including local archaeologists, to act as site monitors. So they would go out and try to record and document damage to the local cultural heritage sites, local museums, etc. Whatever they can visit, um, they would go there, try to document that damage. And if they somehow... They were like an impromptu detective squad, 
gathering eyewitness reports and photographs of the destruction of cultural heritage in Syria. And one of those site monitors was a man called Adnan al-Muhammad. We interviewed him in Arabic and had an actor voice his lines in English. He was my university professor, and he taught me that artifacts are not just all things from the past, but they are part of us. Even his lectures were different. He used to stand on the table and speak about how amazing historical artifacts are and how valuable they are. Yes, yes, no, I, I did. Well, you know, you, well, the, the, there's a kind of a reason for some of this in that, you know, this is the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, and we had very little resources to, to, to teach our students with. And when I say very few resources, literally all we had was a chalkboard. And then later on, they upgraded us to a, a, a whiteboard. And that was it. So uh, often I would have to try to be very creative in, in, in trying to visualize, help students visualize whatever it is I was describing. And clearly, at least for Adnan, it worked. Those lessons stuck with him. As an adult, he cared deeply about his country's cultural heritage. But in 2013, he first noticed that people were looting artifacts from Minbij, which is where he's from, in the north of Syria. At this point, life was still very normal. There wasn't any danger. The war was just at the front lines. But our work was on the outskirts where the archaeological and historical areas are. And there was no danger there. Everything changed when ISIS came. ISIS took control of Minbij in 2014. Before that, it had been under the control of various rebel groups. The day they came into our area, the ISIS convoy passed by, and they had about seven tanks and five or six 4x4 cars that had ISIS fighters inside. I watched as they arrived in my village and took someone from the village to show them around. We started to feel that even something as simple as taking photos of monuments was dangerous. We didn't know who we were dealing with because they were all different nationalities. It was scary. And ISIS quickly realized that there was money to be made in looting and exporting antiquities. First thing they do is they institutionalize the looting. They see cultural heritage as a resource. And so as a resource, like any other resource, it gets put under the Rikaz, and it then becomes something to exploit. Duena Rikaz was ISIS's ministry for resource management. Amri explained to us that that's where they set up their archaeology department, basically to control the trafficking and the sale of these artifacts. And they would then sell these artifacts at auctions in the northern city of Raqqa. Everything, everything, mosaics, glass, statues, reliefs, palmarine reliefs from Palmyra, um, gold, coins, artifacts, from little, you know, low-grade material to really nice, highly exquisite, unique pieces, everything. Anything they could get their hands on. And within a year, it became a really profitable operation for them. 
artifacts could sell to foreign buyers for as much as $35,000 a piece. But because Syria was basically inaccessible to foreign monitoring groups or journalists, the outside world were really struggling for reliable information on how big this operation was. And so that's basically, that was basically Adnan's mission. His mission was to uh, go into, back into the areas that he originally came from. So the uh, East Aleppo countryside, the Mambij area, and then try to push down as far as he could to Raqqa when, whenever possible. With a couple of hundred dollars a month from Om's organization, Adnan would drive his motorbike from his village outside of Mimbij into the city center, where ISIS would hold these antique auctions. Or he'd visit sites they'd destroyed and take pictures, smuggling the files back home on a flash drive that he kept hidden in his sock. Sometimes I went to Mimbij twice a week, and beheadings were common. I always saw them beheading young people. Everybody was pale, and you could see the fear in their faces. I didn't believe that I'd survive ISIS, so I wanted to deliver this information to someone who could use it in the media or in academia. He'd be in ISIS-controlled territory for a week or two at a time, without being able to communicate with anybody outside Syria, even his wife, who lived with his three children in Turkey. When I spent more than a week without calling, she would call Amir and tell him that I hadn't called. I used to tell her that if I go a month without calling, don't worry, I won't be putting myself in danger. She encouraged me, but I knew that she was scared. When he had what he needed, Adnan would get back on his motorbike wearing a black leather jacket and head north through ISIS checkpoints on the way out. ISIS liked the color black. I was keen to blend in as much as possible with the right length, beard and hair, shaved mustache and short clothes because they were closely monitoring how we looked and it was the first thing they checked at the checkpoints. They would take anybody who looked different out of their car and interrogate them asking them about things like prayers to assess their knowledge and interest in religion. It was all routine questions. And I started to figure out the pattern of what happens to these checkpoints. I made my sentences short and to the point. The more you say, the more chance you would make a mistake. Once he was past the checkpoints, he would drive up to a town called Jarablus, right on the border with Turkey. Amr had gotten him a Turkish SIM card, and from there, Adnan could pick up enough signal to send the pictures he'd taken to his wife in Turkey, and she would then forward them to Amr in the U.S. And that's how we communicated while he was inside. Then once he, and of course, as soon as he did that, he would then destroy all this information off his phone and get back. But in those, Adnan would send back pictures of ISIS's excavation sites, or report on a conversation he'd had with a local dealer details about how exactly ISIS's trafficking operation worked. It was valuable, detailed information, and Adnan was in a unique position to be able to gather it. But while he was undercover, there was no way of getting a message out to Amr, or even to his family. I would be waiting for his transmission, waiting for, like, literally sometimes two, three weeks for him to get out again safely, and then I would know he's safe, and I could then breathe. Adnan was able to collect information on what was being bought and sold in ISIS antique auctions, but that was all he was able to do. 
Obviously, he couldn't do anything to stop it. He told us it was painful to have no choice but to stand by and watch as his country's cultural heritage was being rolled up into crates and smuggled over the border by truck or by boat. ISIS looting and trafficking operation is the most destructive crime against Syrian cultural heritage that the country has seen in decades. But it isn't the whole picture. ISIS is just the darkest, most depraved corner of it. Amr told us that most of the cultural heritage trafficked out of Syria in the last 10 years was done by what he called subsistence looters. That is, the people who have lost their jobs and turned to trafficking because there was nothing else left. From Raqqa, the capital of ISIS' so-called caliphate in the mid-2010s, artifacts would be transported on trucks overland, along the same ancient trading routes that had flowed in and out of the country for centuries. There's a road, there's a main highway that runs from Raqqa all the way to Tel Abyad and then into Turkey. So obviously it's on that main sort of highway, road highway. Um, so you, you would hold the auction, whatever it is you're selling, uh, antiquities, drugs, um, weapons, you know, and then uh, the the uh, and then you would provide escort transportation means to move these things all the way up to the border, and then on the other side, obviously, the, there are smugglers and people who who specialize in this kind of stuff, and they would take it over the border into Turkey, and then from Turkey out into Europe and the rest of the world. In Turkey, they'd be met by dealers and buyers. Some were from the Middle East, but also a lot of them were from Europe and the US. For example, there was this one well-known buyer Amra had been trying to track down. She was a German lady who literally regularly came down to uh, southern Turkey. She would set up shop there and then she would have people bring goods up to the through the um, kind of the border smuggled into where she is and then they would show her the wares and uh, she would buy what she wants and then it would get shipped out to her but for the most part um, you don't even need to do that um, because a lot of that stuff gets also touted on social media facebook whatsapp going back as early as 2014 even before isis took over mimbij Amra and Adnan started to notice these shady smuggling networks popping up on WhatsApp and Facebook. Looters would post photos of the artifacts they were selling, and buyers from around the world would snap them up, sometimes for as much as tens of thousands of dollars an item. And here's the thing about Facebook, for example. Those same features that we use on a daily basis to communicate, and we find so kind of useful, and that's why we kind of hooked onto it, it also represents the perfect toolkit for would-be criminals, would-be traffickers, um, because it's a, they use exactly the same features, but they use it to advertise their own whatever it is they want to advertise. These groups were enormous. Some of them had as many as 500,000 members. And at the time, none of this was against Facebook's rules. Like a virus, these groups kept growing until Facebook basically became a one-stop shop for antique traffickers. In 2019, a study Amru was a part of found that one-third of antique items listed for sale on Facebook were from conflict zones like Syria. And when these antiques have found a buyer, things get even more complicated. Once they're smuggled out of Syria, they'll often be moved to a third country which has a legal antiques trade, like Israel or the UAE. 
or to somewhere where they can take advantage of a corrupt system. Some countries are known for, let's say, being easier to move goods through. Lebanon is one example. It's a very corrupt, malfeasant place, okay? It's rotten to the core, and you can run any kind of illegal business you want, literally out of Beirut, if you pay money. Sometimes they'll stay in these third countries for months, or even years, before they're shipped out and sold. But when they eventually are, it's often to Europe or the US, which is where antiquities from the Middle East are most in demand. I mean, personally, I don't see why we do that. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I guess it's, it's I mean, there's other, for the Middle East, you know, obviously the Bible connections, obviously for Egypt, it's, it's the pharaohs and, and the pyramids and all that. And, and Mesopotamia, the, the, the beginnings of civilization and all this as well. Marka Tawil is a vice dean at University College London. And as part of his research, he tracks the trade of antiquities coming from the Middle East. So these stories uh, make people want to know that they are somehow, you know, you see it sometimes in people's eyes. They're, they're holding something. They say, oh, my gosh, this is something 5,000 years or 10,000 years or whatever. They just seem amazed by it. And, just, and it's also economic, let's face it. I mean, for, for certainly what, very expensive items, in, having antiquities is a great value. It's, it's like investing in gold or something. You know, it's like Bitcoin in a way, for, except having uh, ancient objects is Bitcoin. You know? So there's value there, right? So it can increase over time. For researchers like Mark, it's really difficult to track how many illegal antiques there are for sale at any given moment in Europe or the US. From the outside looking in, the whole market for this stuff is full of grey areas. But to simplify, for an antique item to be sold legally in the US or Europe, it needs to have what they call provenance. That is, essentially, a kind of sales history to prove that it hasn't been taken from its country of origin after 1970. 1970, because that's when UNESCO brought in this rule that basically said any cultural items that leave their country of origin from now on are considered illegal loot. But anything that was out of the country already is fine. So I'm a, let's say I'm a a dealer, okay? And I acquire this item. The only way I can claim that it's legal is if I can demonstrate that this was somehow wired Prior to 1970, then anything that happens to it beyond that, it is legal. But only legal from a international, you know, but from if you want to talk about ethical legality, no, it's not legal. It, it was looted. This is one of those gray areas that we were talking about. Because according to Amr, it's often left up to the dealers and buyers to check provenance for themselves. Okay, so this is this. We come down to the issue of due diligence. Different countries. See, I'm talking about Western Europe. I'm talking about the United States. Different countries have different ways of determining what is considered to be due diligence. Right now, it's you know you as a buyer and a seller are supposed to do your due diligence. You're supposed to make sure that the object, just as you make sure the object is authentic. Everybody does a due diligence on authenticity because nobody wants to buy a fake. Oh, we put a lot of effort and time into that. But when it comes to provenance, we get a little sketchy. We get a little hazy. I mean, I've seen provenance like the seller swears that they've had it in their family. What, swear? What, what, do, what do you mean swears? Really? <laughs> 
swears or uh, uh, um, on the on the on, on the uh, owner's assurances? What assurance are we talking about? Or just stated, you know, oh, this has been this stuff. Do you have any paperwork to prove? Do you have any, you know, that none whatsoever? Now, why can they get away with all this? It's because there are no consequences. You have to be really stupid to get caught. And, and, and if you look at the number of convictions uh, from the antiquities laws that, that exist in, in the UK, for instance, it's very few. It's, you could probably hold in one hand, you can count the number of convictions. The people I know who have been caught have been caught because they were ignorant of the law, uh, not because... Uh, so they, it, it takes something like ignorance to, to lead to someone being caught. And that, that means that the laws are not strong, in my opinion. It means that the burden of proof is often on people like me or others who are trying to find people who are stealing these things and that's not the way it should be in my opinion i'm i'm curious if like if i go on ebay today and i type in i don't know like let's say iraqi artifacts something basic like that um do like the things that come up are they are they legit legal sales well, it's it's. I would guess probably a lot are not legit, but uh, the problem is there's no way to prove that. So, in a sense, that there's no nothing stopping eBay to sell them uh, because there's no way to prove that they're illegal. As, um, so, and the checks I think are, are fairly minimal in terms of what's done uh, to prevent or to ensure that the artifact being sold is is uh, legal effectively. If you do an eBay search using the coded language of the antiques industry. Vague words like Mesopotamian or Byzantine to stay away from words like Syrian or Iraqi. You come up with all sorts. Superb Mesopotamian white bull amulet, 450 pounds. Beautiful Byzantine religious cross amulet depicting saint, 50 pounds. Museum quality, original ancient plaque relief of Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess, 3,588 pounds. I reached out to the seller of that last one, their username was Salvage Hunter, to ask if they'd talk to me about the provenance of the item. And they said, I'm selling the collection which I've inherited from my grandfather. It was collected in 1930 to 1960 before I was born. I don't know anything about the market. I don't think I can give any useful information to you. I replied, on your profile, it says you love hunting for treasures and you have a huge collection of antiques and art. Are they all from your grandfather? Given you sell so much, you must know a little bit about the market. They didn't get back to me. Some listings make it clear that they have provenance in their title. But most don't mention it at all. So that's why, I mean, I personally would discourage anyone buying anything on eBay that deals with the past because it's a good chance it was attained probably legally. We got in touch with dozens more people in the antique trade. Everyone from eBay and Etsy sellers to the bigger auction houses. Barely any of them responded and only one was willing to talk to us in a recorded interview. Hello. Oh, hi. Is that Chiara? Yeah, Kira speaking. Kira, sorry, that's I wasn't quite sure how to say it. Kira was selling an ancient Mesopotamian seal stamp on eBay for £220, along with thousands of other items. She told us that roughly 20% of the items she sells are from the Middle East. And she said that she buys most of them from job lots, that is, buying a big batch of items from an auction house or a private seller in bulk. So, like, something we've been hearing a bit about is, like, provenance, especially when it comes to items from the middle east um and so when you buy something from a job lot like does it come with provenance or um no not always um no i mean rarely happens whether we have something with provenance oh it rarely happens 
No. Oh, okay. Especially with job lots, because it's just a, like a collection of things, maybe from a collector or um, from a house clearance or something like this. So they don't necessarily come with something that's attached to a person or where it's come from. So you kind of don't really have any idea about what where it came from before you had it? Um, no, no. She told us that when she buys an item that doesn't have provenance and she doesn't know much about where it came from, she'll bring in an expert to take a look. But that's mostly to make sure it's not fake, not to make sure that it's legal. I guess, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound rude. I'm just asking, like, how do you sort of know that that your the items that you're selling have been in the UK for long enough time that they haven't been like trafficked from let's say Syria recently during the war honestly there's truly not really a way to know and um because I get all of my items from auction houses so I mean it would be them that would have to have that responsibility of knowing that information basically I, I don't know that information I don't know where the auction house got it from so there's no way for me to know we're not saying that Kira was selling items that were illegally trafficked into the UK or that her items had false provenance as Mark said there's really no way of knowing if any one item is legal or illegal when the due diligence falls only on the seller but from what we can tell this is all another massive grey area with Etsy and eBay dealers it seems to be a bit different with the more established auction houses. A lot of them have a section on their website that lays out strict policies on stolen antiquities. But none of the antique houses we reached out to wanted to talk to us for this story. Seeing the other end of this industry, I was just surprised by how much of this stuff there is on the market just in the UK. Considering this trade has been going on for so long, uh, from the darkest days of European colonialism through to the Syrian civil war and still into today, I guess I'm just kind of surprised that there's still so many of these items on sale. To me, it honestly felt completely depressing. Speaking to Adnan, who had literally risked his life to document this illegal trade because he cared so much about preserving whatever was left of Syria's cultural heritage. And then on the other end, seeing these dealers and sellers in the UK who seem to look at cultural heritage as a commodity more than anything else. For Amr and Mark, the only way to clean this industry up is better government import restrictions. Well, this is the supply, this is the supply and demand end. And remember, the supply side is driven by demand. So, you know, we often focus on the supply side because that's the in some ways the easier side to blame well you know you're destroying your heritage you're looting it you're you know we're trying to save etc how about you try and convince your people not to buy looted antiquities how about you basically clean up the trade how about you make it illegal so illegal so you know grievous that if you're caught with a traffic item from a, a conflict zone like syria that you will go to jail for 30 40 50 years you know then I guarantee you there will be no more demand or the demand will drop to such a level that uh, basically people won't do it anymore. You're not doing anyone a favor by buying this item. You're only, you know, pleasing yourself. The best place for this item is to stay where it came from. Which makes me think of Adnan, whose story really set us off on this journey and how he risked his life again and again to try and save whatever tiny corner of Syria's cultural heritage that he could. But ultimately, he was one person working with a small team 
up against the relentless, sprawling, international looting machine. Sometimes people would come to him with an antique that they wanted to get his opinion on, often because they hoped to sell it to a broker. They were not always ISIS fighters, just ordinary people who were poor and in need of income. I used to ask about the price. They might tell me they got a bit of $2,000 for it, for example. I try as hard as possible to convince them to keep it in the country. I would say if you wait, I can get you a higher bid. But that's all he could do in these situations, try to buy more time. He couldn't buy the items himself. The money would have gone directly to ISIS. And anyway, he just didn't have that kind of money. When I held these artifacts, I was in agony because I knew they would leave the country sooner or later. I would just take photos and document them. That's the most I could do, hoping that one day they would find their way back to Syria. One day. In 2016, Adnan left Syria and moved to Turkey to join his wife and children. He told us it was hard, that he struggled to find his place at first, and for about three years he was working in a restaurant. Then he joined this British organization called the Council for At-Risk Academics, and through them he was able to get back into academia. He still studies and he writes about Syria's cultural heritage. We reached out to eBay and live auctioneers to ask about their policies on illegal or looted artifacts. Live auctioneers told us that anybody selling on their platform has to do their own due diligence to make sure that what they're selling is legal. Essentially, it's up to the seller. They said they have a zero-tolerance policy on listing anything that's suspected to be stolen. But when we asked if they take an active role in making sure that the items sold on their website are all legal, they didn't give us an answer. In a statement, eBay said the sale of illicit antiques and artifacts is prohibited on eBay in line with UK and international laws and regulations. We work closely with authorities such as UNESCO, Interpol and the European Commission to provide a safe and secure online marketplace that prevents illegal trade while enabling the legal sale of antiquities. All sellers on eBay are required to comply with our artifact policy. We have automatic block filters that prevent listings of any items which breach our policies and we also have teams continuously monitoring the site to identify and remove any prohibited listings. We also take strong enforcement action against sellers who violate these policies, which can include temporary bans and permanent suspensions. Amr told us that Facebook updated its community standards in June 2020 to ban the sale and exchange of cultural heritage items, but he said that the rules aren't widely enforced. After the break, we dig deeper into the future of experiencing cultural heritage and trying to revive lost sites. We've focused mostly on Syria in this episode, but the destruction of cultural heritage is a problem across the Middle East and North Africa. Just like Syria, Iraq had suffered from mass cultural looting under ISIS. We spoke about this with Dr. Rojin Kamel Mohammed Amin. <laughs> I am one of those people who moves my hand a lot. Even when I speak, I speak with my hands. <laughs> She's the director of the Digital Cultural Heritage Research Center at Soleimani Polytechnic University in Iraqi Kurdistan. Yes, actually, my fascination with cultural heritage dates back to uh, early days when I was in elementary school. Uh, I was 
hoping to either, if I am not an architect, I would have said I would be like to become a, a, a archaeologist or a, an uh, those people who go to space, I forgot the name right <laughs> An astronaut. An astronaut, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a big difference, though, between those two jobs. It's like in the ground or in the sky. And absolutely. And I think that it was this very big difference that made me fascinated with the two because it's all about discovering mysteries. And one of those mysteries that she spent years unraveling in her work is this question of what value we actually place on cultural heritage. For me, cultural heritage is anything that people have memory with. Uh, so from past and even currently. She was the first person to put it to us like this. But she told us that she thinks of cultural heritage as like a human right. Basically, if you, don't, if you cannot get access to a cultural heritage site or a cultural heritage product, be it tangible or intangible, then basically that means you are kind of being stripped from a right that you have as a, as a human. Can you kind of imagine a world without cultural heritage? What does that look like and what effect does that have on people? You know, we call human a social animal, basically. Basically, and when, when we say that, in a sense that we are very social towards not ourselves in ourselves, but also our connections, our origins. One time I was thinking about how, uh, why human all the time throughout history, they wanted to leave a memory it's something, I mean, basically, even from, like, you know, the ancient time, people were leaving written texts or something to basically leave a mark, something about themselves, the legacy, their legacy after life. They wanted to be remembered. So I think cultural, a life without cultural heritage means basically a life without being remembered for people who were living before us. And what does that mean in terms of people living before us is basically saying... They don't pass anything to the next generation. It seems that somehow for human, this is kind of one of those need. Maybe they should even classify it in hierarchy of need, need to be remembered. So I think a life without cultural heritage means a life without that connection or that interaction to people's past, uh, which is something it seems to be encoded in our genetic, I don't know, for whatever reason, humans throughout history always wanted to be remembered. I wasn't expecting such a beautiful answer. <laughs> For researchers like Rujin, the challenge they're facing at the moment is this. Now that so much cultural heritage around the world is gone, how do we find a way for future generations to experience their country's history? Rujin and her team work with virtual reality technology to create digital exhibitions of looted and destroyed heritage. For instance, one project she was working on when we spoke to her was looking at the destruction of Yazidi cultural heritage by ISIS. And our goal is to understand, to answer that very specific question you just asked, is to see how an ex a virtual reality exhibition that create the whole experience for what Yazidis has gone through, then how can that contribute uh, to, first of all, raising awareness about the, gen the genocide of the Yazidis, as well as connecting people with their cause and uh, making them aware about the, dis the destruction that took place in cult their cultural heritage as well as in their everyday Yazidis' life. The thought of being able to see what was lost by stepping into a virtual archaeological site or museum was so fascinating to me. It reminds us of the importance of cultural heritage and how empty our lives are without it. Now we are trying to make, raise people's awareness about cultural heritage. And then when you do that, it's more likely to inspire action and change in their behavior, which is kind of people becoming more protective for their cultural heritage. 
There are a lot of body of research that shows, you know, virtual reality is working. They, they call it even as an empathy machine. It puts you in the, in the shoe of someone else. Rogine wasn't the only person we spoke to who told us about different ways of bringing back cultural heritage. Amr told us about how we can use technology not just to replicate the heritage, but maybe even to track it and bring it back. He told us about this one thing called smart water. Smart water was initially developed to help uh, local police forces um, in England, you know, find stolen goods. And the, the, the basic concept behind smart water is that it's a, a polymer that uses nanotechnology um, and you apply it. It almost looks like paint. They call it a traceable liquid. Basically, each pot has its own unique signature. Each a batch, if you will, of smart water has a unique signature to it. And when you put it on an object, so it dries basically invisible, like invisible ink. And then let's say that, that item is stolen, and when the police shine a special light on it... But if you shine an ultraviolet light on it, it will light up like a Christmas tree. Archaeologists have started applying smart water to artefacts at risk of being looted, in the hopes that one day they can find their way back home. This episode was written and produced by Zena Duwidad and Alex Atek, and edited by me, Dana Balut, with editorial support from Nadine Shakir and Anastasia Campbell. Fact-checking and additional research by Tamara Jabouri. Sound design by Sara Khadouri. Thank you to everyone we spoke to for the story. Amr al-Azm, Adnan al-Muhammad, Rojin Kamal Muhammad Amin, Mark al-Tawil, and Kiara Peterson. Thank you also to Alice Fordham and Salman Ahad Khan, for their help recording interviews for this story. And also to Abdullah Al-Asil, who performed the voice of Adnan. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening. Take care.